Welcome to the podcast for Icon Church. We're in a series on the Gospel of John titled Witness to the Light. And following the sermon, you'll hear the weekly Q&A. Here's what we're doing. John chapter 2. In John chapter 2, we see two stories. And John is using these two stories kind of literarily to set up a, a really constant theme through the rest of his gospel. In fact, following chapter 2 in 3, 4, 5, and 6, we see a, a number of sermons that are born out of interactions Jesus has with different people. So uh, Jesus with Nicodemus, Jesus with the Samaritan woman, and on and on and on. And in those stories, in those sermons that he's teaching to them, these little monologues, um, we see two sides to Jesus that are going to be exemplified in these two stories. So one side today and the other side uh, next week. Now, what's interesting to me, at least, about these two stories is that um, they also represent a tension that many people have with Jesus. Okay? So the first story is what we'll look at today is Jesus' first miracle, which is turning water into wine at a wedding. I think it's uh, apropos for this morning uh, as we approach Super Bowl Sunday that if today at your party the beer runs out, pray and God will provide. Uh, and, uh, and so we, we see this, this story of what I'll call gratuitous grace, just a, an overwhelming amount of grace that Jesus shows to this family. And then next week is Jesus in the temple where he sees people buying and selling and all of this kind of marketplace that's taking place in the temple. And he sees a bunch of cords on the ground, picks them up, turns them into a whip and starts whipping fools. And so these two stories kind of uh, next to each other are meant to kind of cause this tension in us where we see on the one hand this gratuitous grace of Jesus and then in the very next story we see Jesus's seriousness about sin, okay? And what I've found over the years of pastoral ministry is that people tend to err towards one side or the other on, on these kind of two halves of Jesus, and very few of us can hold them in tension, right? We are meant to hold them in tension. We're meant to see this gratuitous grace of God in tension with his seriousness about sin. And in fact, next week, we'll see how we can't really understand one without the other, but oftentimes we can't hold them in tension and so people and in fact whole cultures um, tend to err towards one side or the other. Now, this was illustrated for me recently um, in, a, in a little bit of an online hubbub that happened uh, last year or the year before about a worship song, right? So uh, some of you probably know the song Reckless Love, right? You guys know this song? Eh, some of you. Okay, like three of you. Uh, slowly admitting you've heard a song. Uh, it's, it's tough. It's tough. Um, in this song, uh, the author writes about the reckless love of God. In fact, I want to read to you the chorus. He says, Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh, it chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it, and I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Yeah. That's the chorus. And, and uh, what's interesting about the, the chorus is that uh, people got all tied up about the word reckless, right? The, and they asked themselves and asked the greater uh, online world, is the love of God 
reckless. What, what, is, what does he mean by reckless? Does it mean that, that God's uh, acts of grace are without uh, boundary? Does it mean that uh, he overcomes every obstacle? Or does it mean that God doesn't know what's going on and is just all kind of willy-nilly and all of this? And people were very concerned about this word reckless, okay? And they fought about it online. So here's what I've noticed about, about this kind of broader issue, right? That some people uh, are very comfortable with the idea of the gratuitous grace of God, and that is so uh, uh, inviting to them and appealing to them about God, and they're drawn to it, which causes them to get really uncomfortable when Jesus is serious about sin, and the Bible talks about wrath or hell or consequences of any kind, or when it seems like Jesus' teachings, or more broadly, the Bible's teachings, seem to get really specific and really serious about sin, it makes them really uncomfortable. Right, And then I've met other people who are really comfortable with the limits that God's seriousness about sin creates for us and get really uncomfortable when we talk about grace or when we say really crazy things like reckless in a song. And so that makes them really uncomfortable because they go, well, man, if we let that grace run amok, then no one will care about sin anymore and behavior anymore. And the people on the other side who love the grace of God get really uncomfortable about the truth of God or the seriousness with which God deals with sin are really worried that we'll put a, a box around grace and somebody might think that grace doesn't apply to them. And so it's this tension that often we don't hold in place but fall to one side or the other. Now, I'll, I'll be the first to confess I fall on the side of seriousness about sin. I'm very comfortable with seriousness about sin. Now, I want the grace of God to be unlimited for me, but when other people accentuate and exaggerate or really talk all the time about the limitless, unconditional love and grace of God, I'm always thinking in my head, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, get to the part where you talk about sin. That's me. So what I want us to do in these next two weeks is I want us to feel the tension that is supposed to exist in these two ideas, okay? And so what I'm going to do is this week, I'm going to lean real hard into gratuitous grace. And then next week, I'm going to lean real hard into Jesus's seriousness about sin. And I want you to pay attention to what you feel. Right now, I've already told you what you should do, right? Hold them in tension, but I want you to forget that. I want you to ignore that. And I want you to honestly feel what you feel and pay attention to what you feel about the gratuitous grace of God and God's simultaneous seriousness about sin. So let's read the story together and then uh, we'll, we'll talk about that gratuitous grace. It says, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, let me pause before any of you get upset about him calling his mom woman, because I know if I called my mom, I almost said wife, but didn't, uh, mom, 
woman, there would be consequences, right? So hear the translation not exactly nailing what Jesus is talking about because this word here and the way he's addressing her is the exact same way he will address her at the end of his life, at the end of the gospel while he's on the cross talking very kindly to his mother, asking John to care for her, right? And so just, just go with it, okay? Woman, what does this have to do with me? Jesus asks. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have, quote, drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, I want us to see a couple things that are happening here kind of culturally, right? So every commentator that I read on this story really tried to accentuate the fact that if uh, a wedding runs out of wine, like that's a big deal, like brings a ton of shame to the, the couple, to the family, like it's a huge deal. And, and all of them kind of tried to outdo one another in telling me how big a deal that was. One in particular guy named Kent Hughes, who's great, uh, he, he described it this way that I thought was a little dramatic. He said, I do not think we can overemphasize the distress in Mary's words in verse three. They have no more wine. In the Jewish wedding feast, wine was essential not so, the drinks, not so the guests could drink to excess, but because it was a symbol of exhilaration and celebration. It was of such great importance that a lawsuit could be instituted if no wine was provided. Those who were behind the scenes at that little wedding in Cana were shattered by this breakdown in hospitality. Childhood dreams of the ideal wedding were about to dissolve in a nightmare. The drama of our text is very real. What I love about this is if you are a Bible commentator, you're not an exciting person, right? Like, let's just start there. <laughs> Nothing about your life is exciting. And so when, when you come across a text like this, this is your moment to shine, right? Like, this is your moment to bring even an ounce of drama into your otherwise boring and mundane life. And so Kent here really grabs the bull by the horns. Um, and this Jewish girl's childhood dreams of the ideal way. I'm just picturing her little wedding book just being thrown into the flames in this moment. So let's just say this was a big deal, right? This, is a, this was a big deal to run out of wine. So uh, uh, Jesus is saving the day in a very real kind of social way and not just doing this, this kind of big miracle. Now, one of the other things that became really clear as I'm reading through all of the commentaries, I've got about eight commentaries that I'm using consistently for this, uh, for this whole series. And what was interesting about this story is each of the commentaries had at least one, if not two or three examples or ideas about what this miracle could be pointing to. 
Okay? So remember, we talked about signs that every time Jesus does a miracle, John calls it a sign, not just a miracle. That a miracle is just a demonstration of power. A sign is a demonstration of power that points beyond itself, points to some true thing, uh, primarily in this case, about Jesus, right? So that we ought to see the sign and it directs us what to think and what to believe and where to go and how to act, right? Like it points towards something. And each of the commentators had a couple of different ideas of what this could be pointing us towards. And so I thought, gosh, nothing would better illustrate the gratuitous grace of God uh, exemplified in this story than if instead of picking two or three, and it's a sermon, so three, uh, different ways in which this was a sign, I thought, let's throw them all in. I'm only preaching once today. We're doing 13 points, okay? That's what's happening. 13. Get your hands ready to take notes. 13 ways in which this story illustrates the gratuitous grace of God. We're doing a gratuitous amount of points in this sermon as an illustration of how gratuitous the grace of God is. One, we see in this story the essential good of God's creation. Now, this mattered to his original audience, especially John's original audience, that was already being kind of infected by what we've already called a proto-Gnosticism, the beginnings of Gnosticism. Gnosticism, Greek philosophy, is basically um, a separation of the spiritual and the physical world, and more specifically, that the spiritual world was good and that the physical world was evil and broken. So this had all kinds of implications for who Jesus was. For the Gnostics, Jesus could not have been a physical being because physicality is inherently evil. So therefore, they preached a Jesus that was spirit that appeared to be physical but was not. And so for Jesus's first miracle to be taking the very real raw materials of God's creation and transforming them into another real raw material of God's God's creation was John's way of saying to the Gnostics, you've got it all wrong. That the essential being of God's creation is good. Now, it is broken and there is sin and all of those things are true, but the essential kind of nature of God's creation was meant to be good. So um, we, uh, throughout church history, more recent church history, have heard in hymns and things, this world is not our home. Right, And I, I think that's meant to convey this sense that we shouldn't get comfortable here. But in its most literal sense, it's dead wrong. This world is our home. This is the world we were created to live in and thrive in and find joy in and find contentment in. This is the world we were made for, and it will again in the future be the world that can be the setting for our joy and contentment and satisfaction. It's now broken, but it wasn't, and it won't be. And that's a very different kind of posture towards the world. Rather than desiring to be separate from it and distanced from anything that would be considered kind of of the world, that we would be able to look through the brokenness and sin, namely to the people around us, but also to the rest of God's creation and kind of, kind of try to see through it. I, I think about this all the time whenever I take a shower and forget to turn the fan on and I get out and the mirror is foggy, right? 
that this is my kind of constant reminder of the truth of the nature of our world, that I can see in the reflection kind of a foggy, basic version of an outline of myself, but then when I wipe it, I can see more truly and purely who I am and what I look like, and then I regret it and wish I could just see the foggy version again. But nonetheless, this is, this is the world. This is when we look, we ought to try to see through the fog, not say, well, this, this is what it is. No, this is a fractured version of it, that the world that God created is actually essentially good, and that's grace. That's the gratuitous grace of God to create a world that was designed for us and not to be in conflict with us. Number two, because I got 13, so we got to move fast. Number two, that Jesus has a kingdom value for celebration, that ours is not a stoic, ascetic faith, that God gave us feasts and festivals, jubilee, and the command to celebrate and be thankful. Um, I, I have a friend who's a uh, pretty well-known pastor theologian, and he was uh, speaking at another very well-known pastor's ha- uh, church and then was having lunch at his house. And this was, uh, they live in the Midwest, and it was very cold. It was the winter, and they were in the house uh, eating soup, and it was freezing. And my friend, we'll say, we'll call him Wayne, uh, turned to uh, his, this, this other well-known pastor who we'll call John and said, John, your house is freezing. Why, why, do I know, why is it freezing? We're inside the house. And John's response was, because Wayne, I don't want to be seduced by the comforts of this world. I want to be aware that this is a broken and fallen world. And, and Wayne said, yeah, but God also gave us heat. Let us be joyful and thankful at God's provision. And they didn't turn it up. But because sin and brokenness exist, And there is much to mourn. It is because of that that we must celebrate what God has done in, through, and for us. It is in the face of the brokenness. We shouldn't be deterred by it. We shouldn't acknowledge that the world is broken and just be at peace with that. That we should also see God's gratuitous grace in providing for us, walking with us, allowing us not to experience the full satisfaction we were made for, but a piece of it. That yes, there is coldness and there is winter in Seattle where it is always dreary. But then there are moments like these where none of us should be inside. We should all be reveling in this, thankful for what God has provided, this moment of joy in an otherwise dreary existence. Number three, we see in this story Jesus' constant power over the physical world. Right? Not only did he turn water into wine in that moment, display that power, but uh, St. Augustine describes this story this way. He says, the miracle indeed of our Lord Jesus Christ, whereby he made the water into wine, is not marvelous to, know, to those who know that it was God's doing. For he who made wine on that day at the marriage feast in those six water pots, which he commanded to be filled with water, the self-same does this every year in vines. For even as that which the servants put into the water pots was turned into wine by the doing of the Lord, so in like manner also is what the clouds pour forth changed into wine by the doing of the same Lord. But we do not wonder at the latter because it happens every year. It has lost its marvelousness by its constant recurrence. 
and yet it suggests a greater consideration than that which was done in the water pots. But since men, intent on a different matter, have lost the consideration of the works of God by which they should daily praise him as the creator, God has, as it were, reserved to himself the doing of certain extraordinary actions, that by striking them with wonder, he might rouse men as from sleep to worship him. A dead man has risen again, men marvel. So many are born daily, and none marvels. So yes, this moment is an example of Jesus' power over creation, but it only is a hint, a suggestion of what's always happening all the time. But because the sun comes up each day, we forget until the sun comes up in the midst of the rain. We know intellectually that God provides the water that grows the vine that gives birth to the grape that when pressed and aged and processed that I know nothing of becomes wine. We grow accustomed to it. And so in a moment when he does it, when he compresses that entire timeline into a moment, we marvel at what he does each and every day. Number four, we see in this story a, a foretelling, a, a teaser for the future wedding feast of the Lamb. John, who wrote Revelation, says this in verse, chapter 19, verse 9. says, the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. A central biblical metaphor is the relationship between God and his people being like that of a groom and a bride. That points forward to this one day where God will be united to his bride for eternity. That this first miracle is a foretaste of the final day that we can envision in human history when we are finally united with him. Culturally, this meant an invitation to the covering, the protection, and the provision of the groom for his bride. So it's an invitation that God makes to us, his people, into his protection and provision and covering. Number five, we see God's provision for our good. I wonder sometimes if we believe that God's posture is towards us that God leans into us, that he wants our good and is actively working for it. Sometimes when I, when I think of it myself or when I see it in others, it, it almost seems like we believe that God is kind of a step or two back waiting for us like this, seeing how we'll respond, seeing how we'll react, seeing what we will do, and then deciding whether to intervene or not, or if our, our actions uh, kind, of, kind of deserve the act and grace of God in our lives when that is not at all the case. That God's posture towards us is like this. He is in, he is present, he is for us, he is with us, he is working for our good at all times. Jesus here is protecting his loved ones from want and shame because he loves them. Jesus could have stood, he could have left them to the consequences of their poor planning, but he didn't. And, and I, I don't think I, I fully understood this. I'm sure I still don't fully understand this, but I couldn't even understand it as much as I do now until I had kids. Because there is just never a moment, there is rarely a moment 
when I stand back and just let my kids kind of live out the consequences without intervening or trying or caring or at least desiring. There are certainly times where I let them kind of see things play out, the, the implications of their decisions, but only because I love them, I want that for them. I sit and, and with my, uh, my third child, Penny, who's learned to read. She's in first grade and getting better at reading. And, and I sit and listen to her read, and I can just sense when she's beginning to stumble on a word, or I see the word further down in the sentence, and it's a long one or whatever, and she starts going, te, te, te. And, I, and I'm like, duh, right? You know, like I, <laughs> I, I, I foresee that coming, and I lean in, and I want to do that for her. This is the posture of God for us. Number six, we see in the story the power of our faith in Jesus' character in verse four. Verse three, uh, the mother of Jesus comes to Jesus after they run out of wine. She just simply says, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And then she just walks away. I just, I just absolutely love this, this mother-son dynamic thing that's happening here where she knows him. She knows Jesus better than anybody in the room. She knows what he's capable of. She knows his character. She knows him. She sees the problem, takes the servants and goes, hey, they don't have any wine. He goes, okay, what's that got to do with me? And she just simply turns to the servants, doesn't even respond to that from Jesus. She's not putting up with any of that just turns to the servants and goes, just do whatever he tells you, and then walks away. And then Jesus performs the miracle. Leslie Newbegin, uh, another commentator, missionary, theologian, says this. He says, her response is the authentic response of faith. Her will is wholly subservient to his, in that he, she says, do whatever he tells you. This is not apathetic resignation. It is expectant faith. It is expectant faith. And we see in this moment how Jesus will react to our expectant faith. When we come to him believing him, who he is, knowing who he is, and laying something humbly at his feet. She doesn't make demands of him. She doesn't try to manipulate him. She doesn't say, well, if you really were, doesn't do any of that. She just presents the problem and then tells the servants, just do whatever he says. He could have, he's the son of God. He could have said, go sit down. Like that's what they, he could have said. He could have said anything he wanted to in that moment. But she knew him. She trusted him. And she entrusted the moment to him. And he acted. Not because he had to, but because he has a gratuitous amount of grace for us. And his posture is always for us. Number seven. Jesus is the true and better bridegroom. Not only is this a picture of the wedding feast of the lamb that we will see in Revelation 19 at the end of all time, but it also sets up this really constant theme that we'll see even later in John's gospel, that Jesus is the bridegroom. He is the true and better bridegroom, that every biblical metaphor finds its resolution in Jesus. They all point to him. 
He is the faithful bridegroom. He is the shepherd for the sheep. He is the culmination of God's central message. All of the hundreds and hundreds of ways in which God told us about who he was, all of it finds its conclusion in Jesus. Number eight, Jesus can, will, and does solve our real-world problems. Here's three things that I prayed for this week. A parking spot, actually parking spots, plural, dependable Wi-Fi, and the discipline to wake up in the morning. I prayed for all of those things this week, and that's not an exhaustive list. And that God gave me one of those parking spots. The Wi-Fi is a little shaky still, and I almost never get up in the morning on time. But we're growing. God's desire is that he is intricately involved in every aspect of our lives. That there is no such thing as spiritual things and non-spiritual things. They are all God's things. Jesus doesn't just care about the spiritual stuff. He cares about your wine too. We can sometimes have a default Gnosticism, where we in our own minds separate the things of life from the things of God. And this is an absolutely false dichotomy. It is a false understanding of the world. And Jesus, by creating wine out of water for a party, tries to blow up that entire mindset and remind us that there is nothing too small, there's nothing too worldly, there's nothing too physical, there's nothing too normal, there's nothing too mundane, there's nothing too illegitimate, there's nothing at all that is beneath the work of God in your life. All of it matters to him because it matters to you and he created all of it. There's nothing that falls outside of the scope of his love and provision for us. Number nine, we see in the story the present rule of God, that we don't have to await the second coming of Jesus to witness his power. He is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords today. Abraham Kuyper, famous Dutch theologian, said very famously, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Present tense, today, his. It is under his purview, it is under his sovereign lordship and kingship. All of creation is under his present rule today. And so moments like this and many other signs that we'll see throughout the gospel are what I like to describe as little windows into the kingdom of God. He gives us a glimpse of the way things ought to be, that if there were no sin, we would never run out of wine. If there, in the future, where there will be no sin in the kingdom of God, we will never run out of wine. That's not the way the world is supposed to be. You should never go to your fridge and find it empty. That is the work of Satan in your life. So we get this little glimpse, this little window into the kingdom of God. And then Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that our prayer ought to be, our expectation ought to be, God's movement ought to be and is the present rule of God over our world so that we can say, God, make it today, here, as it is in heaven, now. Like, that's the way it ought to be, and we pray that that would come true, that it would be that way, because God's present rule is happening. He is not just will be 
King of kings and Lord of lords. Number 10, Jesus turned vessels of purification, which is symbolic of the law, into a joyful celebration of covenant and grace. This is one of the central moves of the New Testament. The Old Testament was largely external and physical. The New Testament is internal and spiritual. And Jesus teases this, begins to tease this, that all of the expectation, all of the language, all of the the kind of ritual and rite and how the Jews thought about their relationship with God was largely physical and external. And Jesus is going, listen, and we're going to see this in uh, next, uh, the next chapter. Jesus and Nicodemus, he goes, you have to be born again. You have to be saved, transformed from the inside out because the problem of sin is in your deepest places. And so if the solution of salvation doesn't start in those same deepest places and work its way out, it'll never happen. And the law said the problems are out here and we need to restrict behavior. We need to restrict our, our, uh, our touch of the world, our connection to the world, our overlap with the world, and that will save us somehow going this way. And Jesus goes, it would never work that way. That's, that's never been the thing that couldn't possibly be how it works. It has to start in here and move its way out. And so in this moment, he turns these vessels for purification, this, this application of the law, and he turns it into a symbol of covenant and grace, and a, a gratuitous amount of grace. He gave them about 120 gallons of wine, good wine, that the, the head of the feast was like, whoa, 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 this is the good stuff. This isn't the two-buck chuck. What, that, that, we're supposed to be there by now. You bring out the, the good stuff, you know, the, the, the Robert Mondavi stuff, you know, early. It's just the name that popped in my head. I don't even actually know if that's good. It's probably not. And, and, we, and we bring out the bad stuff when, when people are, it says drunk freely, but the literal translation is are drunk. Like it, that's literally what's happening here. The ESV writers are like, well, let's, you know. And, uh, but literally the guy goes, usually when people are drunk, we bring out the bad wine. You've brought out the best wine here at the end. You brought out 120 gallons. What were you doing? Why, why were you saving this wine? This is over-the-top, gratuitous grace provision of God. Number 11. We see the beginnings of this metaphor that we'll pick up later in John, that Jesus is the true vine, and in fact, his blood is the good wine. This is a, a, a theme that is constant in John that culminates in the Last Supper. That relational connection to Jesus is connection to the source of life. And as we'll see that the, at the Last Supper, that the good wine, the best wine, the wine that actually solves, that actually brings joy, that actually gladdens the heart in an eternal sense, is the blood of Christ poured out for us. Number 12, the wine failed, but Jesus didn't. Newbegin, again, says, we shall learn that Jesus himself is the true vine and that the wine of joy is, in fact, the blood of Jesus, the blood of the new covenant poured out for the life of the world. It is that alone which can provide joy in its fullness. For, in fact, like every natural joy, the wine failed. The natural joys of life, which truly understood and received, are a parable of the joy of God's kingdom, all come to an end. They do not themselves lead out into joy in its fullness. They fail. 
All of the things that God created us, this good creation that he gave us is meant to bring joy, but not all the joy. It's meant to bring contentment, but not all the contentment. Psalm tells us that wine gladdens the heart, but not ultimately. That the wine does run out. The things of this world that that are meant to bring us some contentment, some joy, some sense of love and togetherness, and all the things that our hearts demand, that our hearts crave, are meant to be, as Newbegin said, but parables of the truthfulness of their full satisfaction in Jesus himself. The wine runs out, but Jesus never does. Number 13, lastly, Jesus acts outside the plan. And this might be my favorite part of the whole story. Because of the theological ambiguity of this moment, I love it. Verse 4, Jesus says to his, his mother, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Jesus, uh, we believe, is omniscient. He is sovereign. That nothing happens outside of his will. Nothing happens outside of his knowledge. Nothing happens outside of him in any way, shape, or form. And so with that in mind, one might expect when, when Mary comes to Jesus and says, hey, they're out of wine, and he goes, hey, sorry, my hour has not yet come, that he's going, listen, there's a plan, and the plan hasn't kicked off yet. So sorry, but like get back to me next week. That's when this thing's supposed to actually start, okay? And if, it, if the story had ended there, it very well could have, and the, the takeaway would be, God's got a plan. God's got a plan for you. God's got a plan for the wine. God's got a plan. And there was a reason why he let this wedding dissolve into a nightmare and all of this stuff. And we we could easily teach that idea. And it's true. But he tells his mother, my hour has not yet come. And then even so performs the miracle. What's that mean? Does that mean that he has a plan but then has the freedom to act kind of extemporaneously outside that plan and make exceptions to the plan and and act before he was supposed to or before the plan laid out? I don't know. Does it mean that this was the plan all along but he wanted to just say that so that we would feel like, yeah, he had a plan, but you know what? Even when there's a plan, he will go above and beyond that to bless us and be with us. I don't know. And I love that. Because I hate it. I love clarity. I love boxes. I love things to be true, always and forever, and predictable. And so I love that I hate this. And I, and I hate that I love it. And I hate that I hate it. I love that I love it. I don't know. I just, I love the ambiguity of the whole thing. It challenges me to ask questions, go, what's happening here? Here's what I know. Jesus has a plan. And... Jesus loves loving us. It says that Jesus left the 99 to go find the one. That doesn't make sense. That's not a good strategy. I would never do that for you, okay? It's not very strategic. Stick with the 99. Who knows what could happen while you're gone? Jesus does it anyway. So Jesus has a plan. He is omniscient. He is sovereign. He is overall. And he gets to do whatever he wants. And that, that is always going to be grace. He's always going to choose grace. He's always going to choose to love you and always going to choose some way to draw you to himself. And he does so for his disciples. See at the end, verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. 
Now, the way we read that might make us ask the question, well, didn't they already believe in him? Because they followed him, right? Like Jesus said, come follow me, and they all did. Some of them heard John the Baptist say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and they left John to go follow Jesus. So didn't they already believe in him? Yes, and this is, this is such a cool thing that John does almost every single time that this kind of phrase format in the Greek is used. This is already the second time he's done this, where the tense that he's using here literally means they believed into him. Okay? And the idea is that they, they moved closer to him in faith. They believed a little more. They trusted him a little more. They entrusted themselves to him a little more. They moved closer to Jesus. They had heard the testimony of John and responded. They had heard Jesus talk about who Nathaniel was and change Simon Peter's name and all this, and they they moved closer and they believed a little more. And then they're at this wedding and Jesus turns 120 gallons of water into wine and they go, okay, that that bought me a little more. I'm I'm bought in a little more. I'm going to move closer to you. Here's what we have to remember about faith. Belief, faith, is a daily choice we make. An ongoing commitment to trusting Jesus. They believed further into him. Their faith deepened. They moved closer. The expectation of faith that is that it's ongoing and growing. Day one of faith is not full faith. Signing up to follow Jesus is not the finish line. It's the starting line. It's the beginning of our relationship with God. It's the beginning. It's the first step of faith, which means, by definition, it is the weakest version of faith that we will ever have. It's the weakest and smallest and shallowest it will ever be. And so we need to keep walking and walking and seeing what he's doing and believing further and further and further into him as his disciples did. This is who Jesus is this gratuitous, over-the-top grace that Jesus shows up miraculously even at, even at a wedding to multiply wine so the party can continue and the family can avoid shame. This is Jesus' posture towards you, that he wants you just to believe a little more and a little more and trust him a little more and give over another thing and another part of your life and another idea and another hope and another dream every single day drawing nearer and nearer and nearer to him and everything he's doing in your life, everything, everything he is doing in your life, the things that hurt and the things that bring you obvious joy and feel good and feel warm and love and connectedness and the things that feel like distance and pain and hurt and loss, everything is meant to draw you further into him so that you would believe into him more and more and more each day. That's his desire for you. And he uses this this gratuitous grace, this over-the-top, never-stopping, never-ending, dare I say reckless grace to draw you to himself, to unveil more and more and more of himself to you so that you might believe. All right, let's, uh, let's do a couple questions here. Number one, it seems like John is trying to both acknowledge the insight of Greek philosophy by using words like logos, while also correcting it, speaking to the Gnostic ideas. Is that a good way of reading John as opposed to the synoptic gospels? 
what would that look like for us today to take the core story of the gospel and both acknowledge and respond to our own culture's errors? Uh, first of all, yes, I do think that that's a good, uh, good reading of John and specific to John from the other gospels. So um, some of you may know this, but each of the gospels is written with a very specific audience in mind and is therefore kind of tailored uh, to reach that audience with the, basically the same message. So for instance, Matthew is written primarily to Jews and therefore has the highest number of Old Testament references of any of the four gospels because they're trying to connect Jesus to the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. So John, writing to a largely Greek or at least Greek-influenced audience, is going to start with the Logos to kind of connect to Greek culture and thought, but then also challenge it. And I think that that's uh, not only happening in John, but is exactly the way in which the gospel always acts within every culture. In fact, Tim Keller speaks to this all the time where he says the gospel always affirms and confronts elements of any given culture. So no matter what the culture, the gospel will always affirm some of the good that, you know, ways in which that culture is tapped into the truth about the universe and inevitably confront some of the evils or, or some of the perversions of that truth. And so I think that's absolutely true in our world today. Much of, uh, much of kind of the progress of our world in ways that we have as a culture sought to uh, heal wounds from our past around racism and sexism and all kinds of different forms of bigotry is a real good. And, and we as gospel-loving Christians ought to affirm the inherent dignity of every image bearer of God. This is, this is so crucial to who we are as Christians. Um, and we ought to confront it ways in which um, our culture gets not only that process, but a lot of things really wrong by overemphasizing certain things or uh, underemphasizing certain aspects of it. So yeah, the gospel is always going to do that. It's always going to affirm because even though we are in, in all ways broken, we are not broken to the greatest possible degree in all ways. So there is real good in our world that we have to affirm and ways in which the gospel confronts all cultures. Uh, number two, I wonder if the title Gratuitous Grace is itself a bit of a misnomer. If it is from God, is not this lavish portion of grace the exact right amount? Couldn't we equally say serious grace and gratuitous law? Sure. I like my words better, but it's fine. Um, no, yes, definitely. Like the, the point of what you're saying is, is essentially the argument around the reckless love of God, right? Like that, that word reckless or that word gratuitous is always going to be the product of your perspective. And so I think from our perspective, and especially from the perspective of the one who really prefers the seriousness of sin and that the, the kind of box of truth really resonates to them, grace is always going to feel gratuitous. It's always going to feel risky. It's always going to feel like, gosh, if we, if we tell them about the grace, they're just going to do whatever they want, right? Like that's always going to be a core fear of someone who is more comfortable with kind of the truth and law side of things. And so, yeah, it's not gratuitous from God's perspective at all, but it can be often gratuitous from our perspective in the sense that it's far more than we would ever give ourselves. Thanks for listening. For more information and podcast episodes, head to iconchurch.org.